This podcast is sponsored by Shadow Dragon. At Shadow Dragon, we discover and monitor open source intelligence data effectively. To find out more, please go to our website at shadowdragon.io. I'm Daniel Clemens, founder of Shadow Dragon. Today we've got Nico, Dutch OSINT guy. We've got Brian Dykstra from Atlanta Data Forensics and the infamous Elliot Anderson, OSINT instructor for all of DOD. You can call it infamous, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, let's kick this off with the discussion of to crap map or not to crap map. That is the question. Well, there's no, there's only one answer for, for that. It's just no more maps. Just in general, no more crap maps, no more PP uh, maps, no more, just no more. It doesn't help. All right, so oh, I, 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 I generated a terrible one for a client last week, just, just truly awful, and they loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely useless, made no sense, and they thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen. Yeah. yeah. I think in general, leadership is like shiny dashboards in general. As long as it has statistics moving like uh, pie charts and stuff, they're happy. They don't even know what to look at, but it's moving. It has nice charts with figures and they're happy, which says something about leadership. Oh, you're exactly right. I feel like if a map's not referencing map-related data from like a like a tactical or like a, like a like we need to move something somewhere and we need to know what's where. If it's not that, if you're not answering that question, it seems pretty silly to me. And it's one of the very first questions we get. So I agree with you. I think a lot of times it's just, is it shiny? Is it is it does it have a clear coat? Does it is, does it does it move or spin? Can we put it up on a large screen in the situation room? Because then it would make sense. Yeah. So I saw a, a map this last week. It was uh, done with some React OS library. It was super fast. I mean, I was I was mainly blown away by like just how fast the movement was in it when they when they traversed through. Um, but they were using it to display virtual sensor, uh, you know hits uh, for uh, anomalies on their network and stuff like that. And at first, that my reaction was, was negative. Like, I don't need to see your stupid pop-up map. Um, but then when I saw how fast it was and how fast they could actually use it to drill to the specific machine um, and, and, and how you could really quickly, like, visualize, like, a lateral spread and stuff like that, it, it was kind of... It's weird to be looking at, a, at a, some sort of pointy diagramy map like that and thinking it's useful. It actually kind of was, but it was only because it was, I think, on a sh on a ton of hardware. Well, so I'll, I'll share my experience on it. Like, so first, I think we can all blame Norris for the uh, crap map infection and invasion for the last you know ten years. Um, other than that, like, I think that has been the top feature request that we've denied for ten years is a crap map. So um, admittedly, we are moving into at least having a map a visualization for you know link analysis and persistent monitoring where there's a manual workflow tied around it. So 
you know, the the the, the reality is there's not going to really be any lat long type stuff in 98% of the things that we see or any analyst sees. However, they may be able to infer those things manually and then plot them on a graph. And that may help a group that's that's needing needing that um, perspective um, or something that's going to be like moving transnational, you know, for, for larger visibility for upper management. But like we've gone back and forth on this year after year after year should we ever prioritize this and i think it does make a business a difference in business because people need the wow factor they're obviously buying recorded future which doesn't um in my opinion always enable them the the best observations it gives you too much data with uh pretty pretty looking type stuff but it doesn't let the the customer drive things the way that they want to so you know, I think the the idealistic perspective for me is just are we enabling the customer to be the individual versus shoving too much stuff down their throat? And then um, how can we also enable them to do their jobs better? And I, so I think that there's a place for the crap map, but I, I don't necessarily need one myself, but I, I can see where there's a, a certain amount of people that need it and they may have a good business case for, you know, fusing uh, physical operations and, and intelligence and investigations together. So that's kind of where I'm at on it. And there's the crap map as I float in it. Well, I think there's nothing wrong in general with putting things on a map as long as it gives you information to pivot into, right? If it's just a map to present stuff because you, you got a map, then it's useless. It, it needs to give you a perspective on something that's valuable otherwise it's just a map yeah i yeah. agree i agree yeah, i agree with that yeah and that's that's kind of what i was getting at earlier if you can't make a decision based on where something is on a map so if we were to talk about tweets if we were tracking someone uh in a spreadsheet and they were we'll just say tweets whatever some some online thing and we can see uh he tweeted in in uh, austin then he tweeted in San Antonio, then he tweeted in Laredo. If I don't know where those places are, I, I won't know this is a person traveling south and as he in Texas and as he's going south, he's he's tweeting from cities. That allows you to make a decision based on information like that. If I have two hundred thousand tweets mapped to a map, what am I getting out of that? You know, like what what's my you know, it's what's my what's my take on that? I saw um, the other day. I saw I think it was John McAfee did a little thing where he challenged some guys to uh, figure out where he was on Twitter, and they did exactly that. Or well, part of that was part of the process. They went. And it was Benjamin Strick who figured it out. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, but he he uh, but he used the time just like I said. He did a time analysis on where he was mapped that and then he looked at a high level view at some gas stations and things about where he where he had posted pictures but that's a very specific scenario that i think it's not like you're going to be in every investigation out there and it, and it has to do with going back to a tactical thing so that was that's tactical right we have like we're reacting to sets of things that are all around one sort of small subset not this high level hey look there's forty thousand tweets coming out of belgium about right yeah like I, I i definitely don't think that you can map that very effectively on like the the corona stuff you know 
Um, so, so we're doing it on fraud I, investigations. Wait, Sorry? well, so so we're doing it on on fraud investigations okay. um, because a lot of times the you know the attempts to transfer money uh, to banks in various locations that's actually best displayed you know geographically over a map right sort of a timeline map sequence sort of thing you know and then they move the much money to this this location in montreal you know it was then transferred from this montreal location to this you know bank in in las vegas and you know so on and so on and so on you know if it if it helps tell the story right i i agree with elliot on this if it if, if it doesn't tell you anything immediately by looking at it no good and the use case where I used it before was um, when you used instances like Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter, for instance, on top of each other to look at the movement of people who are participating in a certain rally, for instance, or the tracking movement of football hooligans uh, moving from city to city and like ravishing all everything that's on their path. That's mm -hmm. that's, that's tactical data. That's tactical yeah. data, like I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's that's a useful use of a map, but still. The two to eight percent use it. It's not that much. So, so we use the hell out of timelines, right? In the IR investigations, and we struggle with the same problem, right? Is is what we usually do is we we splat all this crap on a timeline. It's absolutely useless to us, and then you just do this like peel away, peel away, peel away thing until it's, you know, it, it finally is useful again. Um, but but we go back and forth on that all the time. Is it is it too much data? Is it too many points? Yeah, but I think that's where where part of your process is always like you've got the messy the messy data. You have all the data, and then you've got the cleaned up version, which you're presenting on some regular basis, and that gives the context that you need. But you know the messy data. Once we go back into that, like how many times have we found weird clues a year into a, into something and. Well, we wouldn't have seen that if we would have redacted it out, but and, and you know. that's the argument we always have for that is is like, well, you might have missed something. I was like, gosh, you know. But two, you know, to Elliot's thing, two hundred thousand points on my my timeline is impossible. You know, I just I can't see anything because of the trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's one of the things I struggle with because I do a lot of the the training stuff. Is is whenever I'm building, especially like link analysis, you, when you're building it. I'll have 10 or 12 different windows open with different things where I've got a big ball of data from say like you were mentioning tracking tweets around like a, like a, a protest or something, you know, you'll, you, you'll have 16,000 tweets or 16,000 people on this, this ball over here. But the one where you're actually doing the investigation, you have to make this like, you have to, it's almost like a gut feeling after doing it a while where you kind of map it, but you don't want to get rid of that stuff because you'll find somebody and go, Oh, where was he then? And you'll go look at your other, your other graphs. So it's, there's definitely a, a learning curve or, or some sort of a, a strategy or, or, or a learned, you know, behavior pattern you have to the use. Bird, that kind of thing. I, you develop over years. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. It's like a, I call it a gut feeling where you kind of look at data and someone, and you have enough data points and you can kind of look at it and you can go, I know I can figure out this. And then there's times you can kind of look at it and you're like, I'm not sure. But eventually you get to the point where you can look at enough data and go, I know we, I know I can figure this out. I know we've got enough data here. So, Or, or they've got enough, um, I, I guess it's kind of like, uh, let's call it OSINT mannerisms. They've got a few things that they've done that are kind of low bar that kind of help you infer that like, oh yeah, there's, 
in the end, there's not going to be lots of operational security here. It, on the first you know, glance, it feels that way because we don't know. But then, oh, hey, they've got their, you know, PGP key creation date on ProtonMail open and boom, you know, like I know what that means. It's, you know, not paying attention. Where else are they not paying attention? It's blood in the water, you know? Um, yeah, you kind of see the same patterns a lot too. Yeah, like yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of a, a good um, differentiator there too because like you've got good solid methodology on investigative stuff, but then you've got like advanced playbooks, you know? So um, you can't really move into the advanced playbooks unless you've got a good list of core core skills developed. And then those playbooks are kind of going to be ephemeral over time. Sometimes they're going to work, sometimes they're not going to work, but you ne- still need to have the go-to for the pattern. So it's kind of like chess, you know? Like each opponent is going to be a little different, but you've got like your top 15 moves, you know? In the end, it's all human behavior, and all humans, in essence, are alike, right? Maybe yeah. Culturally, but yeah, yeah. So, yeah. guys, you know, yeah. Well, I was go gonna ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna do a quick little intro uh, on Nico because not everybody is gonna know know him. Um, no. Yeah, not. I know. Like, and and nobody knows me, so that's great. Um, Nico's been uh, involved in. He he was originally in a, a detective. Uh, He's an operations analyst, tactical analyst, OSN analyst, opera- operations intelligence, cyber intelligence. Um, he's been the project manager for Bellincat, which has just put out some you know great stuff over the years. And he's also a consultant and advisor for you know everyone who's awesome. And um, you know, like there, there, that's a, a, a huge swath of a career right there. Before you also you... forgot he has a fun Twitter. Hey, and he he knows lots of math. Know that too. So, um, <laughs> um, but that's a lot of stuff. And um, I think that sometimes you know, since we're all familiar with each other, we may kind of like just jump into discussion. But th- I think there's a lot of things that we can just ask that that may be helpful for different. Um, listeners, uh, different audience uh, from your background, Nico, and um, if there's anything else you want to add into that that extensive list, go for no, it. No, I think I, I would like a copy of this introduction. I've never been so cool introduced. So, well, yeah. it, it'll be... Uh, we'll, you ask me anything. Uh, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> an open bookcase. <laughs> well, we, re- we recorded it, so we're good, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's a quote now. It yeah. is now a quote that maybe the 14 people that watch the podcast will yeah. be. Yeah, when cool did we get 14? <laughs> Actually, we're, we're up to about 250 downloads in the first month so far. So, Well, yeah. so that's not bad at all. I'm glad so, you think so. I don't know if it's good or da- good or bad. No, because uh, the the ones I do was through Cyber and stuff like that. I mean, they they slow build. You know, eventually you get you know over a thousand downloads and stuff like that. But but yeah, I mean, you know, two fifty in the first month, month and a half or so is you know that's that's a, a good sign actually. Oh, good. Well, guys, we're doing a great job then. I think so. As yeah. long as I beat Ron Gula's records, you know, at Cyber, I don't really give a shit. It's all about just beating Ron. I think we should go for that. I think it's we the most that. powerful motivator. 
<laughs> it really is. It is, and, and then he buys me breakfast, so I, I, you know, I should feel bad about it, but I don't. He's a good guy. Ron Gould is a good guy to argue with. You know, like, he is. He um, is. He's a I, great guy to argue with. I think you're you're a good arguer with him. I definitely argue with him pretty well. I think, and um, we should just get more people to argue with Ron. You know. Well, you know, he's he's a VC now, right? You can argue with him, you know, at will. Um, so Nico can you share uh, how how your experiences in uh, different roles have brought you to the point you are today and what were your expectations your first day on the job and your surprises your last day of the job you know where where you were in in the police and and you know all those different roles What's the contrast there, and you know, did you expect to be where you're at now when you started? No, absolutely not. Because the funny story: originally, I wanted to be um, a commercial designer with for window shoppers, so I wanted to design uh, the windows you shop at. Um, but um, to get into that that school, you had to do a test, and I was I didn't pay attention. So um, I was one week one week late. So I had to bridge one year. And my auntie said, well, they need people at LE to do parking tickets. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Because at that moment in time, I was around 17, 18 years old. And I was pretty anti-government at that moment in time in my life. Now, did you have a skateboard at the time? Yes, I did. And a basketball. Yes. I had a skateboard as well. But then she told me what I could earn on a monthly basis. And when I was 18, I was like, oh, yes, I'm so giving out parking tickets on a daily basis now. So uh, then I was and that was um, a unit within the Dutch law enforcement. And then, well, I was in and I saw the detectives and the analysts. And I'm like, yes, I want to be an analyst for sure. But you needed to be a detective first to um, even come to becoming an analyst so i was a detective for almost no first i was a street cop for three to four years that's not me it was necessary but that's just not me i did a, um, a swat team for a year also not me i like to be i like sports but i don't like um sports 24 7 what swats do yeah. all the time <laughs> um, then I became a detective, and when um, I became a detective, that's where the internet really started to expand over in the Netherlands. So this was almost 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. And I always was a nerd. So I, I, I owned a first, an Atari ST, uh, uh, C64, all that kind of stuff. So um, when I got the chance within a league, to uh, confiscate a computer and do stuff on it, I was like, yes, sign me up, give me the computers, throw me in a little room, and I'll manage. I'll find stuff. I'll solve cases just by giving me a computer. So that's where I slowly started shifting into the analyst role, and the analyst roles were first were youth gangs, uh, the larger um, international drug gangs. And so there was a lot of data. Um, 
national, but also international data. And I wanted to enrich it with data I found online. So I started building dashboards, enrich enrichment dashboards with help from people who could code and program because um, I'm not good a coder, but I do think I, I have good ideas occasionally. So I would pop in uh, those ideas, they would start building and I think almost every government works in this way that you always need permission to build stuff because it costs money and it's time consuming. And that slowed my process. So I worked overtime with people who were just as enthusiastic as I was and we just built stuff. And then we could show man management, well, I don't want to ask for permission. I want to show you that, that, that this desktop works or this dashboard works mm -hmm. and you benefit from it. And that's where things really started um, blowing up for me career-wise because I was able to um, get management to give me all freedom, which I'm still very grateful for them and try and build the first um, RTICs, uh, the real-time intelligence rooms with within law enforcement. So every large unit had a real-time intelligence room. So where you call 911, the call would come in and they would ingest the data and look in the internal databases and we would build uh, a dashboard on top of it, which enriched the data with open source intelligence data, or at least not, not intelligence, which would enrich it with open source information mm -hmm. to quickly get a better understanding of stuff. Yeah, and then I started teaching people to conduct basic open source intelligence stuff. It was still all self-taught because there were no courses out there. And from there, it started rolling and rolling and rolling. And on my last five years, I was in the human division, the, the more secretive stuff within law enforcement. And um, that felt like beginning all over again because they were so classic and traditional, which for me was really exciting because I could again build. I, I think in general, I'm, I'm a builder more than an investigator. I can investigate, but I, I'm, I enjoy more building up uh, units, teams, and make them become better or more aware of other opportunities and capabilities they mm -hmm. can learn. Yeah, and then I met people from Bellingcat, worked there for a year, which was not as good as I expected, but it's more of match-wise. We, we weren't compatible. They, they do awesome stuff. I, I truly uh, have much respect for what they do in the individual research, but I just think I do not fit into um, the journalism world as much as I thought I would fit in. Mm -hmm. it's just not me. I think I'm more of a governmental, uh, more people person ish. Seventeen-year-old so, skateboarders rolling in his, in his yeah. past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's basically how things went. So now I'm on my own, um, running my own one-man show, and um, trying to build that and expand that the coming years. So I'm almost in a year now and um COVID came in which made made it a lot harder for me to uh keep my head up but still i'm okay um and interesting times and i think i need though i need uh, interesting times to uh keep being motivated and on edge because i'm easily bored mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's, it sounds very similar. I mean, we you have to have some internal motivation and a struggle ahead of you versus the 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 comfort of just sitting around, you know. Yeah, I don't need comfort. I I go good on deadline or let's let's say deadlines um I'll shove my work until the last day and then I'll perform. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, work. I I think that's pretty common with a lot of us because it's like that your ego gets demanding in in fighting for the accomplishment in a short period of time when normally it's probably going to you're going to loll- lollygag around for four to six months unless you really have to. Uh, but if you've committed to it, then, oh, man, your ego's in it. Yeah. But but it, it still depends on, on the team you're in because I used to be in a, in a really uh, cool team where, uh, well, Cishan Ocean Curious Technicetis, he was also in the team. And those were times where uh, you needed half a word or just look at each other and you knew uh, now we need to stop fooling around and we would all pull in our waist and, and make things happen. It was, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Nice, nice. So looking back on things and from, from this point, what were some of the things that were just the, the biggest aha moments or um, just biggest progressions for you, like just from the craft of, of investigation and OSN? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think my biggest aha was um, building a network and getting to know people on a global scale. Um, within law enforcement, you are kind of conditioned only to talk to people you trust and the people you trust will only be within your own unit or group, mm-hmm. which really narrowed my vision. Uh, but I didn't know at that moment in time, only when I uh, started, um, well, actually, I think it was um, Micah Hoffman and Sands, um saying, well, we need to get your name out there. Um, and I was like, nah, I don't want my my real name online. I, I've made my work of staying covert or at least covert ace online. But once I got my name out there or at least my face out there and my name, it, it I honestly think it brought me where I am now. Mm-hmm. People um, obviously wanted to get to know me, and I'm still amazed by the amount of people that are willing to listen to the things I just blabbermouth online. Um, and I think that's my biggest aha. That it's it's very good to keep a low profile um, when you're in a certain position. But sometimes it's also very good and it can bring you a lot of good and additional insights when you um, become a little bit more outgoing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's that's a good reminder for me because I, I I kind of tend to, you know, go get out there just a little bit and then, OK, I'm going back to the cave. Get out there. Go back to the cave. And um, but I get, you know, getting out there is, is always good. You know, it's but it's. You know, not now. And the funny thing is, because I, I do, I still do those um, secretist and covertist uh, types of research because I know 
how to step my game up and have separate machines and air gap stuff and all that stuff. So in essence, nothing changed. The only thing is now that people know that Dutch Ocean guy has this face and he has a name his mother and father gave him. So yeah, but there are still risks. Yeah, and the risks are, of, are that I am exposed now, which I wasn't before to the general public. And yeah. that's some yeah that's a that's a choice and it still was um it's okay it's right. okay for me yeah and yeah. and, and kind of can you can you um i guess for me can you share a little bit about like how uh there seems to be this archetype kind of in the osn community that everything's got to be super secret squirrel and we don't want to put our name out there where where did that kind of come from because like to you know we've put really, a few job um, postings out there over push the, over the last even, few years even in you know, and, you know video, some people uh, actually video interviews resumes and, and, with and, fake and names in the interview because they real. thought you're like man yeah they, they thought that that was feel kind of awkward because you're a like, part of we know that's not your real name guy like what what's going on so what are what are some of the 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 realistic threats that everybody on the call perceives for operational security when you're doing investigations and OSN because you know sometimes they're they they are really there but in my opinion rarely are they there should I take it yeah go for it yeah um well I think there's a huge difference uh when I was in law enforcement even when I was in the secret stuff I was protected by the government so they had my back in essence which made me feel more safe because then I wasn't a one-man show. Then I shifted, for instance, to Bellingcat, which is a journalism group. Um, and the risks for them are probably were probably more real than I ever had within law enforcement because they were more out there, they were exposed, but also they, um, they're not as good at hiding then well um, and they're poking the bear on you know russia yeah so yeah so i mean that's that's um for me a difference and i think when it comes to being secret is in the osint or osint community it's more of how i look at it in essence all people think you're doing cia nsa guy uh, kind of stuff because that's where it in their mind or originated all from mm -hmm. so you've got to be a spook and so you got to act like spook, which is nonsense because it's information that's already out there anyway. So right, right. why do you have to be secretive about it? I can understand you want to keep certain um, uh, tactics or procedures um, for yourself, but that doesn't mean that you have to be secretive about every breath you take. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Brian? I was actually just thinking. I was I was just on a large data breach uh, this last fall, and uh, one of the parties uh, is assisting in the breach response. There was several IR companies in there. Um, they refused to give up the uh, IOC list that they developed because they claimed that it was uh, uh, it was their uh, you know confidential work product. Um, and we're like, but we're all working for the same client. If you don't share with anybody, 
how, how do we all solve the client's problem? You you had a task. You were supposed to provide this information to the rest of us so we could do our tasks. And uh, you know they, they decided to get all, you know, it's it's proprietary. It's like it's, it's not even your data. But uh, see see that more more often than not, um, we get into that a lot with uh, where we intersect with uh, with law enforcement. Um, and especially uh, foreign entities as it applies to their governments and their oversights and stuff like that. We run into a, a lot of that stuff because, you know, we're, I'm definitely not working within the law enforcement thing. I'm working this kind of weird floaty thing through through law firms and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, corporate policies and multinationals and all their sort of you know dynamics um and and we we run into that quite often especially as it applies in uh in asian countries you know uh <laughs> trying to trying to move data around in hong kong and places like that is uh is a little dicey um because you know the, the company itself can end up getting in trouble just trying to cooperate with you know the investigation and stuff like this but like i mean in that example you've got a huge communist country as the adversary with infinite resources. So like there's some, some reality to needing that operational security with that data while you're in that role versus something else. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, in in this case, you know, the the one I was thinking about there specifically, it's it's really just, uh, you know, banking, ACH fraud, that sort of thing. Um, You know, but we have to be careful about how we we move data around in and out of the country um, so that we don't inadvertently cause them a problem with with their own local, you know, government and law enforcement, things like that, as as they're just trying to cooperate with our larger investigation because they want to, you know, help out do their part, too. Um, It it gets twitchy. No, I can especially when we have no real, you know, not again, not law enforcement, right? It's just a collection of lawyers and and, and forensics people and IR people kind of working outside the whole, you know, uh, you know, whole government law enforcement scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Elliot, what what are some of your thoughts here? I don't think you can hide online anymore. It's impossible, especially if you're younger. Um, and so I take a, I take the approach as far as I do agree with you that the community is absurdly i wouldn't call it a uh paranoid but they kind of pretend paranoid or something um but uh i always i always um i always try to focus on the fact that especially being an american i've got like data everywhere like every company i've ever touched is it's all out there and so i I come at it with the approach that anybody can find me and you know, I can go. I can go one of two routes, or, or you basically have two routes. We can try to stay completely 100% hidden, which I think is becoming increasingly impossible. Yeah. And then, from an OSINT perspective, or we can focus on having a operational security set. Maybe don't tell everybody online where you're at at the very moment, uh, and that kind of thing. And then focus on your own personal security, your families, and and your your coworkers as you know a certain level of of. Um, you know, security, and again, and like in in our case, we're not a government group, so we don't have a SWAT team to, to work out twenty four seven and protect us. But uh, you know, we take a, take the precautions we can. Um, I really focus though when I am doing an investigation, especially with groups that have power, 
you know, uh, cartel, China, that kind of stuff, to definitely be a little more focused on operational security and, and not saying, hi, I'm Elliot Anderson hunting you down. But, um, yeah, but definitely, uh, definitely there's, there's, there's a balance there and you have to understand that you can find out anything about anyone. I almost went on this bunny trail earlier, but this, uh, this guy, uh, this guy the other day was, um, he wanted to see our, he wanted to see social net. He wanted to see the product, you know, he wanted to see, see it in action. And he goes, yeah, so I can't, I'd like, you know, we're going to be researching executives and people like that. I'd like to see an example of that. And I said, yeah, sure. I can, I can help you out. That I'll tell you, give you some ideas, pointers, how we can do it. He goes, what I want you to do is just look up this one guy and see what you can find on him. And it was him. And his background was entirely super geeky, like tech guy stuff, even though he's this executive now. And uh, so he was way harder than I expected. You know, I expected to like, we're going to find your email in a breach and we're going to pivot it to this. And it took me like two hours. And uh, to, to, but I, I figured out where he lives and like all that information. And, and this is an example of somebody that was is trying as hard as he can to hide. And it just took me a few hours, you know. So it's like it's kind of impossible to completely with the right starting data point. It's impossible to completely hide. I mean, and that's kind of the point of OSINT investigations, really, you know the end of the day so and don't you have when it's hard to find someone it makes you even more persistent to find them oh yeah totally yeah totally that's also why i that's also why i mentioned earlier there's one of two paths and one path is to actually have a very normal looking online presence uh that has some level of operational security to it that that not everybody's noticing so right yeah so like i mentioned i'm not going to tweet where i am when i'm in that moment for the most part you know the, things like that or or useful misinformation. Yeah, like useful. <laughs> That's half, a good way to put it. Useful so half truths that, that, buy you time, but it's it, yeah. even in that scenario, it's like what are the what are the adversaries that you may be coming up against? You know, like yeah. um, I know for me, like when we first started Packet Ninjas years ago, like the first big investigation I found myself. Man, it wasn't it wasn't until a few years ago that I even started talking about that because. You know, I was like, man, this, I was pretty scared, you know, because it was in that same vein of like individuals going and then we find ourselves in this other story. And oh my gosh, these guys have like infinite capability, no moral compass. And like, um, but that's not normal, you know, like that's not the normal thing that everybody runs into. I think, um, you know, like with forensic cases or, you know, disc forensics and that kind of stuff there's murder for hire stuff you know brian i know you've been involved in some of those we, a few times we do a you know? ton of ton of murder um based on uh, you know our work with uh, public defender services and in dc baltimore and uh and new york um you know there's <laughs> 99 out of 100 people there uh you know there's there's not a lot of, of saving data in, right. in what they they do um you know um People gotta stop taking their cell phones to do murder. Uh, you just, just, you gotta, you gotta put this that guy. thing in. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's just, it's, it's awful. Um, you know, but yeah, there's, there's so many data collection points. I mean, it got me thinking there about what you said about you can't hide. Um, at this point, I was thinking about some of our long-term synthetic identities, which we. we we did a checkup on a couple of them here this this summer uh, that we, we used them again. We hadn't used them in, I don't know, probably five, six years. 
our synthetic identities have a whole online life of its own if they live that long yeah. that when we check back in on it we're like why does he have all these linkedin connections like who the hell are these people and why you know like you know and, and people start to reference these fake entities and you're like how 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 is that a thing you know um and we quite honestly we'd forgotten about them these were just a couple lost leftovers we hadn't used in years and they <laughs> developed more connections on their own as not even being a real thing the equities of synthetic identities we're back at that, so, you know. Question for, for you guys. So, so talking about synthetic identities, what's your opinion on things like uh, physical observation or surveillance? Um, I think that's the past because due to, uh, you, you, you need to have an online persona or synthetic identity <laughs> to complement that. Or maybe if you're doing undercover work for any firm or any government, Nowadays, with things like find clone, find face, comparison, uh, reverse imagers tools, it's becoming nearly impossible. What do you think there are still options for these things? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, and I like to have like different synthetic identities for different genres as well. You know, so yeah, like, I mean, I, I think there's going to still be a need for physical surveillance, and and what, what comes to mind is we do. Uh, 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 civil search warrants with the uh, U.S. Marshal Service now and again, um, you know, and so basically marshals go in, <laughs> you know, guns and stuff like this, and 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 get the place under physical control. Um, but that that lead up to it, you know, making sure that all the players are in all the places that you want them to be at the right time. I mean, you might be able to to put that all together virtually, but there's nothing better than having eyes on somebody at you know four different locations and somebody going one's good two's good three's good four go you know well i mean um, it's a mixture too what about that one time when um there was going to be that raid and what the informant his you know in his friends list was the primary suspect yeah yeah so uh yeah. it happens um, but but so I think there's always going to be a little bit of a place for that that you know and, and maybe it's just that last last minute tactical level intel. Um, but yeah, long term, sure. I mean, I, I think digitally is probably the way to go at it. Yeah. So I I think with the surveillance, I'm I'm shifting to start calling it just a verification phase because surveillance sounds so four four letter wordish. Um, there's always a, a a a time when you've got to do verification. Like if we did the best OSN, best investigation ever, I think we got to be honest that it's on a on the best day, it's sixty percent accurate. You you gotta verify it at the end with having some some dudes go and and do some surveillance or verification, you know. So um, otherwise, it's still just great theory until you've got the verification, you know. But, but when we were just talking about uh, paranoia and operation security, there still is a way bigger risk nowadays on being compromised and exposed when you're physically out there because it's so easy to uh, quickly take a picture of someone you think that's tailing you and cross-referencing that face online. So, yeah. So those risks are becoming, well, look at the China, for instance, with all the cameras. There's no way you can 
move covertly through a shopping mall without being filmed or scanned. And these advertisement polls will say, hey, Mr. Nikodakis, glad you're back here. Um, and the person in front of me who my home I'm spending is Nico. Oh, he's that guy who investigates people. Right. So, yeah, I think that would be a risk in the future to really come to a conclusion in a certain case where you work for months and then could be nearly impossible to be on the streets with feet on the ground yeah, without I, being detected. I'm sure that the folks that are doing a lot of that, you know, for governments, they're going to just have to segment out the teams. Yeah. You know, so certain people are, are in certain roles and in places and they've got to have other people do verification otherwise, you know, and, and then have different people always rolling on and off verification out of different zones. So I don't know, like there's probably a million different ways to, to do some kind of um, fingerprinting of, of, you know, the, the biomechanics of human movement. You know, the, you know, there was articles out that the Russians were doing, you know, gate walk, you know, walking gate analysis and who knows how many other subtle things that we do with, biomechanics of our body that somebody else has figured out like oh that's a nice little fingerprint that we can always have we just got to record it and then do some you know analysis did on you, it you know? did you guys see an article last week um kind of i i want to say it, it made it to ours uh technica but it was about uh basically really ugly shirts screwing up facial recognition yeah, yeah, I've seen those. those and, and I saw the demo on that. I was like, that it actually it, it it was just like the shirt's too goddamn terrible. It couldn't the AI just couldn't focus because it was trying to like look at all this stuff, and it just failed. So it's the collage issue, right? So yeah, you can't. It's it's the same. It's the same problems that when you have like a bunch of screenshots of of web pages versus just the image that you pulled out of the web page. If you've got if you've got a screenshot, it's going to treat it like a collage and then it's not going to know where the boundaries and the edges are to analyze stuff. So you can, you know, you can do that a million other ways with your clothing, your hat, your, you know, things that make other boxes and break the boundaries of what has to be normalized. Yeah. You know, another thing, and this will probably in the future, I mean, this is getting a little like just kind of into theory land, but, you know, right now when you take a data set, you're talking collages, throw off um, those algorithms, as well as if you take a data set of like the Chinese are able to do it effectively because a lot of who they're watching, there's a level of similarity in the characteristics. As soon as they start throwing in somebody from Somalia and then somebody from Russia and then a Native American and then, you know, you go that route. All of a sudden, the algorithm's looking at a shadow on someone's face and thinking it's, or not thinking, but you know, the algorithm thinks it's an eyebrow. And so it gives a positive ID. So once we make the data sets really large today, they're not working well. Um, but on a small scale, they can work super well. So say, like, if you did know a team who could be trailing you, then yeah, you could probably get it to be like 95% accurate. So a lot of those problems we're talking about, I think eventually with enough processing power and enough, you know, just time spent you know, on that, on that, on that machine learning process, eventually probably the entire data set of the whole world won't be too hard for those systems. And so that is an interesting thought though, of 
physical surveillance. And we're just talking about pictures. We're not even getting into all the Bluetooth stuff that's spewing everywhere and all the Wi-Fi and all the cell phones mm-hmm. and all the cars, you know, and all the, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, that uh, I think that's an interesting thought because the physical aspect of it's definitely going to lessen or it's going to become a a different aspect to to that whole process. So. Where, where I think like a lot of the, the security has to go back to the basics of, you know, what's your mannerisms like? You know, what's your demeanor? You know, what 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 are you advertising by default? You, you reminded me of something of a, of a project I worked on years ago. It actually used to connect um, the connect from the Xbox to uh, to see if a customer was happy or angry. That was all it was. was all it did, and the thing in terrible resolution. It, I don't think they had lighter. They might have had it on there. I don't remember, but uh, we got it. We got it pretty accurate. We had it like eighty percent, where you could look at a picture and it would say happy or sad. That was all it was supposed to do, and then it was supposed to try and figure out based on the walk and the and the structure, the length of the legs and stuff, if if the same customer came in and was happy, and if they left, were they mad? The answer to that question was yes. They're mad a lot when they leave, but it was. Uh, it, I got that was 15 years ago. I don't know how long ago the the connect the original connect was, but um, what's funny was all that that was interested in was the was demeanor. So that was the very first project I did with that. But uh, it was surprisingly successful. But it absolutely creeped everybody out. That was a part of it, and they didn't go forward with using the tech. But nowadays, I, I'm sure it would be used. But back in that era, it was too scary for everyone to. to now everybody just install Snapchat for fun and get their face detected. Yeah, or TikTok. And, Number yeah. one thing I teach my little kids, man, if it's free, you are the product. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, Nico, can you share with us a good war story? Um, yeah. What kind of war story do you want? What subject? Oh, man. Let's see if I can just pop one up from the top of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hmm. Give us give us a good one off where where you were surprised. Yeah, I um, love the ones where you're absolutely certain what's going on, and it turns out it's not even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. I must think if something some things are aged enough that I can tell about it. Uh, I had one particular case where um. Someone was talking, uh, a woman, and um, for years, um, but not that invasive. So it took her like three or four years to actually reach out to Ali and say, uh, I think I'm being stalked uh, and kind of harassed, but it's annoying and nothing more than that. And um, almost a week after she filed a report, the the stalking increased it became more invasive so clearly uh the suspect by then um had some kind of taps on her uh what she was doing or maybe she, he compromised her her phone or, or a laptop or whatever but um well forensically nothing just nothing um then, um, well, we started interviewing, we asked more questions to find pivot points. And by then, um, 
by listening to her answers, I was starting to get convinced that we should, she was a teacher. I should have told that in the beginning. She was a teacher and I thought it was a student who had a crush and all that kind of, because every question we asked and which she replied pointed towards that direction. So we started to look at the students. We started to look at students who, um, um, normally interact more on average so sending emails asking for questions just asking for attention but also looking for profiles that were following her which were clearly not uh real humans so synthetic identities set up by a stalker and we were a handful so we started monitoring them and we really figured well this took like i think it was, let me think, then by then we had, we had a model called the four by four investigations. It's four team members, four weeks, and then you needed to figure out something and otherwise we would shelve the case. But it was um, more than four weeks. I think it was about two months. And we had one guy, 20 years old, um, fit in, uh, real uh, tech savvy, um, into IT, wanted to become a hacker, and uh, never had a girlfriend, and clearly had a crush on her. It was obvious. So again, monitoring taps, all that kind of stuff. The prosecution office said, "Well, go for it. You have you, by now. You have enough to to think. You rule out almost everyone. Um, this must be the guy." But nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then one day she came up to the office. She said, I think it's my neighbor from across the street, the 70 year old guy. And I'm like, what, why? Well, he just brought me flowers for my birthday and I never told him my birthday. And we were like, mine is blown. <laughs> <laughs> end of the case, end of the case. We, uh, we investigated him, we looked at him and the 70 year old guy was a really tech-savvy guy who just had a crush on his neighbor across the street, and he monitored for years. He had binoculars. He had tapped into her wireless. <laughs> the whole works, the whole shabam. And we were about to rate the poor young guys, the 20-year-old computer geeks home uh, based on... Uh, and funny thing is, they all checked out. All data points checked out towards the student, but in the end... It was the old guy. It was that was one of the cases where I was like, we were so right, but in the end, we were so wrong. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what what if we actually busted down the door of the kid, but what would really happen? Yeah. Wouldn't have been good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a that's a war story. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. It's also a good a reminder to have good Wi-Fi passwords. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my uh, my kids, we carry the uh, there's a little um, Adrena or a Raspberry Pi thing we carry, and it eats up handshakes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been teaching them just basic security. They're young, they're pretty young, just but enough to understand the concept of security. Uh, and um, it is basically cracked all of my neighbor's passwords and all of them are like eight characters. I have to I go to, Hey man, change your password, dude. This is, this is ridiculous, but it's a great example of 
just a small little operational security thing. It was like, ah, who's coming after me? It's just my house, you know. Yeah. My password's going to be ASDF or whatever. So, yeah, that's I think that's a good point because people just feel too comfortable in their own house, in their own space. That's where they start slacking operation security wise. Yeah. yeah. Also, an airplane. I got an airplane password carrying that thing around one time. So, uh, yeah, it can be made in bad other places. They shouldn't be made too. Yeah, yeah. Brian, you got any good war stories you want to share today? Just trying to think of something, um, you know, that was again off the wall. But the the only one that came immediately to mind was was years ago. We were. Uh, out at the uh, L.A. field office uh, for the FBI off Wilshire there. And uh, we just finished up doing some training with them, um, you know, and the uh, the computer crime team was getting uh, ready to go out and question uh, a hacker at his home. And and uh, anyway, the, the three of them are headed out, and they're like, hey, you want to come with? And I was like, ah, you know, I'm wrapping up some stuff here, packing stuff, getting ready for, you know, next thing, you know, would love to, um, you know, but I'll see you guys when you get back. Um, we'll get beers or whatever. And, uh, you know, as they're leaving, I was like, hey, what about, you know, vests? And they're like, nerds, we, you know, we, we, some some computer dork out there. We we don't really need vests for this. We, we got this covered. There's three of us, you know, it's going to be fine. Like, eh, you know, the government buys them for you. They're free. You know, you might want to take a win. Just saying, like to bring my whole team back. Um, anyway, so they go. Uh, I don't know, two maybe three hours later, they come back, and they are all sweaty and look like hell. I mean, they're just just ripped up looking. And uh, and I'm like, Good, you know, what what the what happened? I thought you guys were going out to talk to some you know skinny kid. Like, what what, what happened to the bunch of you? And they're like, yeah. So you know, we walked up on the house, and uh, you know, it's like exactly what we thought. It's just, you know, house not well taken care of. It's got tin foil in all the windows and stuff like this. Agent knocked on the door, and um, a double barrel shotgun shot out of the uh, out of the email or the, the mail slot and landed right in the middle of his chest where there was no vest. <laughs> and he said, right about that time, I was thinking. God, I wish I had that vest Brian was talking about because <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna die right here. Um, anyway, uh, turns out one of the one of the female agents on hand was able to talk his kid down. Um, they got inside, and um, you know he was living like Howard Hughes. He had his entire house wrapped in plastic and and tin foil and stuff like this inside, bottles of urine. Um, but he also had a significant number of firearms, like something like 70-some firearms they pulled out of this house. Um, and they were like, and he's this pasty little skinny kid, but, you know, apparently also still potentially dangerous. So he's um, been playing on the arms market on the dark web. Yeah, they were like, it's, you know, it's a mess in there. Who knows what's, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, he was only just, you know, they were just, just really questioning him about some other activity. He wasn't actually a suspect or anything else. Um, you know, then they, they find you with tons of guns and live in a hold up and, you know, yeah. whole different, whole different scenario after that. But, uh, <laughs> 
but uh, anyway just uh you know one of those those weird complacency sort of stories where it goes incredibly wrong so my next question guys is uh advice for viewers on the pursuit of truth and how they Oof. you still believe in truth Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. where where this where not yeah. enough drinks on this podcast right now for this. Yeah, yeah. But oh. hey, hey, we've got crazy people talking about how Corona and five G are correlated. Oh my god! Like, so yeah. like, there's got to be you know like new people getting into this in, into the space. Like my my rule is like, hey, you've got to have you know. It's got to be, you know, write down your theory, your your theories and your questions and um, look for data points that actually support those things, not just topics that support your idea. Um, you know, there's just so much crazy stuff going on with everybody sitting in their house for the last two months. Um, you know, just some quick hits of, hey, when you're starting to look into stuff, what are some, some uh, rules that you follow? For me and personally, there is no one, there, there is no truth when it comes to open source intelligence. But what I do like to do is when I find a piece of the puzzle, I would like to find that same piece to at least two other sources. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If yeah. possible. If possible, which is absolutely not always possible. Yeah. I, for me, a lot of times I just like to follow, it sounds so stupid, but just follow the money. You know, yeah. people are motivated yeah. to live and money's part of that. And money's also part of whatever they're into. So yeah. like, you know, that's, those are going to be, obviously it's a job a lot of times. It's, I mean, there's so many different things, but you just follow the money on things. And a lot of times you get to your, you get good views of the answers and then you start getting the human psychology. What do they like? What are they into? Do they like girls. Do they like boys. Do they like dogs. Do they like video games, you know, like those kinds of, those kinds of things. But I do like what you said about like connecting the points because there's a point where like if you can make two connections on disparaging networks like let's say we're looking at myspace and facebook and we see the same person in the two pictures you you, you move your i'm not sure of the target indicator from like i kind of think this is it to 90 percent. you find right, it in a right. third and you're at like almost a guarantee you're at like 99 percent. you know yeah. um that's a good that's a good way to um verbalize that i guess i guess i'd say because that's something i've just felt forever i guess yeah i like to have two or three things that support the the artifact or the the fact that i'm tying to an artifact you know the the finding so to say so at least um it's not just well this one thing and i have an observation like the lens on my eyes that gives me this finding kind of kind of weak if it's just one you know and i think for all supported finding the answer to the truth you need to be your own devil's advocate but i think more important i really like to ask other people's opinion about my report and investigative work right and especially someone who isn't a field expert because in my opinion they would pick out the stuff that i missed or overlooked yeah yeah I, think. I completely agree with that. They also spot things that you just blindly miss. That's like yeah. blatantly obvious sometimes. Because like, you're an autopilot. Yeah. Right. I, I can't tell you how many times read reports and she's like, well, what about this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. I think I've spent too much time with attorneys. I don't, I don't even believe in the truth anymore. <laughs> um, 
you know, you, you can have 17 sources of data. I absolutely know it's correct. And then I watch a, you know, attorney talk a judge into, uh, yeah, I don't think that's real. And, uh, and, and they decide it's not real. And you're like, um, I don't, I don't, there's, I couldn't make it more real than that. And, uh, yeah, that's, so, that's you a, know, yeah. the, the truth's all, you know, point of view and, and, uh, and argument and, and storytelling. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. right. I, you can be, you can be talked into changing what is apparently the truth. Yeah. That, um, I, man, that was a great lesson for me being on the stand. We, <laughs> you know, I, Brian and no, I. No, that was a terrible lesson, but okay. Well, though, like, I mean, the, 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 the takeaway there was there was so much evidence supporting the, the guilty. You know, like, there, was, there wasn't even close to the volume of evidence supporting anything contrary to it. And then he admitted to it. And then, you know, like, all sorts of stuff. And, and um, you know, it's that same thing that you're talking about where the, the judge was just like, Whoa, 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 whoa. I can only consume so much data. This is way too technical. And then the, the other lawyer jumps in and, and just basically convinces him it's not worth his time and it's probably too technical and too complex. And that's the that's the end of the story. We're done. And they say cool things like, Well, nobody could ever really know. It's like No, yeah, actually, no I, yeah, I could. We, I, we, I actually can. Yeah, I we actually I can do show know. you right here. Yeah. You just don't want to pay attention long enough. <laughs> yeah. So attention span erodes truth, right? You can also ask why, like 100,000 times, the lawyer thing, why and how. Just keep doing it. Eventually you can't answer at some, at some point. Why? I don't know. It's made of atoms. It's made out of molecules. Like, I don't know. We're so far down in the, in the weeds now. Yeah. Um it's also my experience that uh, a great deal of money tends to change the truth too. That's why we follow that. <laughs> That's true. So. That's true. Um, so I've got a few other few other things uh, we can cover or not cover. I've got um, the kind of what I'm seeing is the intersection of physical security and threat intelligence. You know, like where that's kind of merging as, you know. A reality, you know, with active shooter situations or, uh, I guess, uh, riots or mob type stuff. Um, guys, we can go over that. We've got uh, how has the COVID nineteen affected you? And then, um, last but not least, at the end, Nico, if you can uh, share uh, your top pro tip for kind of some advanced playbooks for the advanced folks out there, some new techniques, and then I'll share. One of mine and Elliot and uh, Brian, you can share some of yours. Yeah, I, I only got a, I, I, I have to jump a, a little before three, Dan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lawyers, interviews, stuff like that. Just pick up. I'm, I'm fine with whatever topic. As far right. as, as, yeah. as far as, um, as far as the physical threat thing, um, Dan, I, I think that. There's a lot of law enforcement, especially out there, that's behind the curve on that. Um, they're all, they're doing forensic analysis of what happened and not not the stuff leading up to it. Um, we've seen that repeatedly with OI Monitor um, and just pulling in all that data. 
were able to reconstruct what happened. But if you were watching the monitor and listening to it, then you would have known before it happened what was going to happen. And, I, and we, it's, it's I think the whole paradigm for network security right now is that way. It's it's all focused on after the fact and not well. We could have just stopped it if we'd noticed it right here instead of digging through my sem with you know fifteen different threat feeds mm-hmm. and going oh look what happened last Tuesday. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but in the physical security space, I I think it's even worse behind. I really do. Like, oh, probably true. Like, it's 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 the whole concept of we talked a little bit earlier about oh I want to look at a shiny map and that kind of thing and it's like there's an obsession with things like that and not the data and not what's coming at you and and then how do you respond to that and uh, I I saw just this week where I was talking to the customer and they said man we got a we got a tweet that was that was awesome and you know it. Our, our system told them, you know, hey, this is a threat, you know, threat type tweet. They got it within a minute, you know, whereas that could have gone on and on, you know, and could, could, yeah, maybe nothing, but it could have turned into something really big, but they were, you know, and it's like, that's just one group out of like, I can think of a hundred or so that yeah, are not doing that. And it's, it's obvious. So it's just, I just think yeah. it's a weak point right now. Mm-hmm. So. It has to do with, um, companies think that we cannot do it by now so we cannot detect those threats because they still think it's too um artificial or or robot science fiction stuff mm-hmm. it I, i'm not sure i quite to be to be to be very frank i'm not sure what i mean i know money's part of it, it costs money to do this that's kind what of i thing. was gonna say is uh you know it, it's it's got to be a money issue i mean I think it might be something even more simplistic. It may just be the fact that corporate security and network security and lawyers are all in different groups. People don't pick up the phone. People don't walk across the hall. People don't build political relationships in the enterprise. They want to be in their own silo. If they're in their own silo, then, yeah, there's not going to be much crossover until shit hits the fan and, okay, now there's that lessons learned, and that's why we need you know the tabletop exercises, you know. But yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So last but not least, top COVID nineteen impact to your life can be good or bad. Way less drinking in airport lounges. Way less. <laughs> A lot less of that. Absolutely. Damn it. I, I, now I miss drinking in airport lounges now that you said that. But, so I'm, I'm not exaggerating. My brother called me the other day and he goes, hey, I got an idea. He goes, you can get a flight from Austin to Dallas for $40. And we can go to the lounge in Dallas and sit all day and drink for free. And your flight's $40. So it's cheaper than just doing it at home. I was like... Well, that's uh, that's that's a COVID memory right there. <laughs> we didn't end up doing it, but uh, it was, your, your uh, brother may have too much time on his hands right now. He's he's a pilot. So yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he does have too yeah. much time on his hands. He's grounded. Oh, yeah, he's stuck. Yeah, he's been remodeling. I think his house. I just read uh, that drinks won't be allowed in flight anymore in the U.S. for a certain amount of time. So you need to be drinking on the airport. Or you that's need. Well, yeah, you can't even bring a flask in because yeah. Hmm. No, three ounces of liquid. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, in Texas, we have drive-in windows that we can get drinks at now. So <laughs> I'm glad that one came back from the '80s. It returned to us. Yeah. 
yeah, we have a lot of restaurants doing some uh, large scale um, alcohol orders and stuff, delivery style. It's uh, yeah. and the biggest and change of, for me is some less of them are it cheap. Oh yeah, no, there's a burger place near my house that's one dollar beers right now, just yeah. like a fast food place. You just go in and get drinks. Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta get people to put eyes on your menu rather than somebody else's, right? So. If you got a lead with alcohol, and alcohol is honestly, quite honestly, wholesale is not that expensive anyway. Yeah, you know that's that's a good way to loss lead, yeah, especially compared to the burger they're making four hundred, five hundred percent on or whatever. Right. You know, right? You know, if they make their money back on the beer, who cares? They they got you in there. But travel's been my biggest difference. Just less travel. I work from home anyway, so it hasn't been overly yeah, that, different. I either. would say that's the, my biggest difference, and I absolutely love not having to travel. Love it's it. been nice. It's been nice. Well, I do miss it. I do miss uh, the interactions with, especially when teaching and lecturing, mm-hmm. the aha moments on people, their faces. I miss those. I really, I honestly miss those because when I do teach uh, online, for instance, it's just less interactive. You can't, you can't yeah. sense when people are struggling either. That's the thing I've seen. Yeah. Where you're not quite under, like you give like a, an exercise or something. Hey, do this. And then you come back and no one's done it. And when you do that in a classroom, everybody does it. And it's like, what happened? What was the disconnect here? And it's just the human disconnect, I think. I think you're right about that yeah. in a lot of ways. Something is yeah, flat. Doing, doing a ton of virtual speaking engagements, probably one or two a week, every week. And uh, yeah, we said that, that that lack of human feedback, I can't tell whether a, a joke landed, right? I, you, know, I, you know, I don't know if that worked or not. I don't know if people were completely lost. Um, and some of the worst ones where they don't have any kind of like text feedback. I can't even see if people have questions, you know, until the end. And by the end, you kind of lost your whole your whole flow and rhythm of what you're, you're, you're talking to a screen. I, it is, yeah. is my problem. I'm talking to a screen. I know I have good material. I just don't know whether anybody's getting it or not. Yeah. Hell, I don't even know if there's anybody there half the time. Yeah. You know? Could be watching Netflix while you were speaking, right? You know, or or, or doing whatever. Um, you know, yeah. It's, on a more personal level, there's a lot more schooling going on at my house. Yeah, that's absolutely, a, totally. Thanks for teachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I wonder if that's going to have a, a a new re um a big change in you know homeschooling or private schools. You know, like I don't know. I saw a number the other day. I saw somewhere, I, I don't remember where, an article saying that re-enrollments are way down um, for uh, schools. I think a lot of people just figured out their kids are doing great at home. And I'm, I mean, I think there's lots that aren't, but I think there's some that they may actually be better in that environment and their parents have recognized that. I, I think the percentage was down like 7% or something like in this county or one of the counties near us. Like it's it's down quite a bit. Like there's a number of parents that are going to go ahead and uh, keep their kids at home and do the do the schooling at home. So. Right, and then and then you're going to have that big emerging um, new birth factor in December. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. globally, everyone had a kid. Some so had my, three. My wife is the uh, head of HR for a, a large uh, private school uh, here in the DC Bethesda area, one of those ex- real expensive elitist schools. Um, but uh, they basically had no plan for online teaching. Um, you know, when, when COVID started to have an outbreak, they had a meeting and we're like, like do we have anything? And the IT people were like, uh, no, no. <laughs> it's not what we do. That's not what we've been doing for the last hundred years. Um, so when they transitioned over, they just went to completely synchronous teaching. 
so their teachers are on camera eight hours a day in front of the kids doing live lessons plans um which to me sounds awful i guess to the teachers i mean it's not much different than being in the classroom um but it turns out it's super popular versus the asynchronous that a lot of schools are doing and so they've seen a huge influx of enrollments because other you know well-to-do families that were paying but getting asynchronous teaching with their kids heard about well you know my kids getting eight hours a day of of you know all all the regular teachers they were always getting over here at this school and so they've had a whole bunch of additional signups and uh, they're actually expecting a a big blast of additional signups for their summer classes again um but she said it's it's killing the teachers because mm-hmm. they're you know it's just it's just hard on them right you know the, the same thing we were talking about that lack of of you know kind of real-time feedback and stuff like that um, it's just just much more difficult yeah but also classroom management when i see them teaching my daughter and i'm like how can 30 kids all screaming in google meet right and and you're telling them to mute their mics and they're like at least a handful that act that they don't hear it and it's it's mayhem from time to time. Sure, and that's the difference between a public school situation and a, you know a high end private school situation where you know a given class may have nine kids in it. Yeah, that's or, how my daughters are. They're in a private school, so their classes are small, and their classes are already set up actually um, to be kind of independent. So they kind of do work and then they go to the teacher yeah. for help if they need it. If not, they just go through the work there on them. It's designed so they don't slow down if they can read it from a book and get it. So, I mean, it's been working for them, but I can't imagine having 30 kids on the camera. Uh, yeah. Their ballet classes, they've been doing their ballet classes over the camera. That is a shit show. That is, <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. amazing. Martial uh, arts. We've been, I've been watching the kids do martial arts over Zoom, and I'm like, this is not the same thing. No. Yeah. They're, they're both, my kids are swimmers, and so the swimming is, nope. No, there's no yeah. swimming. <laughs> there's no virtual swimming. So, so I think my favorite thing about this. Well, one, I love a crisis. So I'm yeah. I'm having a hell of a good time in this pandemic. This is this is joy time for me. Um, which yeah, sounds yeah. messed and, up. But and hey, to- and by the way, uh, Dykstra and I have been having one up campaigns on our prepping. We're having the best time. Yeah. Truly, yeah. I'm, I'm living my best life right now. This is good for me. Um, but. Uh, the uh the the you know so we're still an essential business so i can remain open all that kind of stuff there's not nobody else in my office but i've been coming in every day day just because uh it technically it's to get away from my family but uh the, the cover story for it is i have a lot of work to do um however the beltway between the the uh the oh, 95 yeah. between the, the the dc and baltimore beltway i I'm doing 85 and I got to be over in the right lane because there's people blowing by me at a hundred plus. Like, I, I, I don't even want to get over in the left lane. That's way too fast for me to even think about over there. Um, and there, cause there's just, there's just no traffic. Um, there is a state trooper on the trip and I have yet to see him sl- stop anybody probably because as I talked to a state trooper friend the other day, he's like, I don't want to leave anybody's car window. It's like, I'm not, not doing that. It's like, if you crash, we'll come get you. But otherwise, you're on your own out there right now. I, I actually, so I've got a pretty fast car. It can, it could go way too fast. 
but I always make sure that there's somebody in front of me going faster, which where I live is usually pretty easy to find. The other day I came up behind a guy and he was doing 135 in, in the left lane. And I was just like, I mean, most cars won't even go that fast. No. I was like, I was like, what in the world? <laughs> like, this is a weird world we're in right now. But yeah, I drove all the way to this work this morning in the right hand lane doing 80. I was just like, how is this, how is this happening? It's going to feel frustrating in four uh, months. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. Back to reality. <laughs> All right. What's I, I got to go, guys. I, I Sounds good, man. Got lawyers. So, uh, well, thanks, oh, that's guys. That's 217 kilometers, by the way, 135. So. <laughs> I, figured, I figured I can do a little bit of math. I, I I never do kilometers. I just I just follow the speed limit when I'm in places with kilometers. I don't I don't risk it. <laughs> read the signs and you'll be good. Yeah. All right. It's great talking to y'all. Yeah, All right. Thanks. Nice meeting. We'll do it again, guys. Thanks.